for several months. Um, what, what we'll be doing this morning is we are going to be finishing kind of a, a three-chapter argument that Paul has been developing. So beginning in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9 and then in chapter 10, what Paul has done is he's just kind of walked through um, multiple facets of one argument. And, and what he's been talking about is he's talking to the church as to whether or not they can eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols, um, specifically because the church has been wanting, many of the believers have been wanting to go and have meals at the actual temples after religious ser- services and ceremonies where sacrifices would be made, they would want to go because it would be like a community, kind of a social gathering. And so some of the, the members are going, hey, we, we want to do this because, Paul, we understand that food doesn't matter. It's just something we eat. It's something we need. There are no such thing as idols. And Paul goes, yeah, I I agree with you on both of those points, except our our greater concern is for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of them have actually come out of idol worship. And and we know that there are demons behind some of the idols, that there is some power. And so Paul is saying, look, the concern is not just whether or not we can eat meat, but it's are we doing this because of our own freedoms and we've kind of got our, our, our foot on the necks of our brothers and sisters saying I can do what I want because I'm free in Christ or are we going to walk in building of relationships and community in, in, in a healthy church relationship. And so what he does in chapter 8 is he talks about weaker brothers and stronger brothers. And then in chapter 9, Paul goes, look, you, if you're wondering why I can ask you to lay down your rights, it's because I've laid down my own rights, my own right to receive a paycheck. And he said, a, a, a minister is worthy of his wages, but I'm going to choose not to be paid by you, right, so that you can see what it looks like for me to lay down my rights. That just because we have them doesn't mean that we have to claim them and lord them over someone. And he says, and I want you to know that the gospel comes to you free of charge, that I'm not being paid to say harder things to the Gentiles or, or easier things to the Jews, that this is the message that has come from, from Jesus. The end of chapter 9, he, he talks about that as the Christian life is a race, like an Olympic athlete running, that we have to be disciplined and self-controlled, that we're not running aimlessly, but that there is intentionality. And then last week, as we began chapter 10, we just saw the bulk of chapter 10 is kind of a theological argument as to why they should not pursue things of, that are idols or idol worship. And, and he continues kind of that race imagery because he says he talks about the beginning of the race for the Hebrews that left Egypt on the Exodus. And he says, look, they started well. They saw the hand of God at work. They saw many miracles. And eventually, they get out in the wilderness and they turn back to idols. And many of them ended up dead in the wilderness because of it. And he said, so we, we don't want to just start the race well in pursuing Jesus. We want to continue the race well. We want to finish the race well. And he said, and we have to understand that if we begin to turn our attention to false gods, to these situations, that it's going to train wreck us. So he's going to finish this conversation now in the the final bit of this argument at the end of chapter 10. So if you have your Bible or your phone, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 10 beginning in verse 23. Paul is quoting the, the Corinthians here, all things are lawful, they've said. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 
For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't, I don't mean your conscience, but for his. For why should my liberty be, be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." And so Paul has spoken very firmly that he does not want the Corinthian believers going to the temples. Not that he thinks that they're worshiping there, but he says you are giving, basically your approval of the situation is when you go and eat, knowing that a a worship service to some false god has just occurred, if you're just there for the meat, you're, you're showing some support and some approval of what's gone on. And so he, is, he knows that this makes them somewhat of like social outcasts. It changes their ability to make relationships. It changes their ability to, to be involved in the community. That people are going to say, why are you not doing this anymore? And so we almost see Paul here going, look, so here's what I want you to do. I, I want you not to go. And then because of our tendency is, right, we think of Eve in the garden. But she adds to what God has said, Right? That, we, that Paul has said, hey, I don't want you to go to this. And our tendency is to go, well, kind of pout in the corner, right? And say, well, then let's make it even harder. And so Paul probably envisions them saying, well, then we just can't go to people's homes anymore. We just can't eat meat anymore. We can't buy anything in the market anymore. And so Paul stops them before it gets there. And he's going to deal with this because he knows that he's already asked this difficult thing of them. And he says, look, my goal is not to make you social outcasts. It's not to make you pariahs. It's not to make you stand out any more than necessary. And so let's talk about what it looks like to buy meat in the market or to buy, to go into someone's home. And maybe the easiest way for us to look at this this morning is that even now in our churches, we have what we would call open-handed and close-handed issues, okay? And so what a close-handed issue would be is that we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, right? That, it, that if you don't believe that, that we're going to have trouble, right? Because that's, that's where we're at. An open-handed issue would be what translation of the Bible you use, right? So we would agree, hey, you should read the Bible, right? Like that's, that's kind of part of this. But the translation you use, I have a preference. If you want to ask me what I think, I'll tell you. But we're not going to stand up here and mandate that everyone reads the same translation. Another one would be, an, an, a close-handed issue would be that Jesus is coming back, right? That we believe that, that he is literally coming back. All right. But if you want to get into all the ins and outs of all the theological conversations we can have about, Escat, um, uh, about his return, we, we can differ on those things if we believe he's coming back. And so a close-handed issue would be he's coming back. Open-handed would be where you fall on exactly all the nuances of that. And so we're going to have some room for disagreement, and it's okay. And so what Paul is doing now is he's saying, look, a close-handed issue is we don't worship idols, and we don't make it look like we're giving approval of that. All right, with that being said, he's going to open his hands here now and say, but let's talk about what this can look like practically in your life. 
And so he gives a couple of examples that would be very common. In verse 25, he tells them, so knowing all of what I've just argued and what I've just said, I want you to be able to eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question, all right? And so what would happen is after these barbecues, after these parties, a lot of the meat that was sacrificed in the temples would then be given to vendors to sell so that it didn't go to waste. And so you would not know necessarily as you're walking through the market, like, is this day's selection of meat sacrificed to an idol or not? And so Paul just says, don't ask. Buy it and eat it. It's okay. You don't have to go up and say, do you know at what point this was sacrificed to what idol? Oh, it wasn't? Okay, I can buy it. Oh, it was? I can't. He says, you don't have to worry about that. If the meat is there in the marketplace, buy it and eat it, and your conscience is fine. Like, the Lord is not concerned with this. And then we see in verse 27, he gives a second example. So if any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, right, they invite you into their home, and you are disposed to go, like you want to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions. Right? He's saying, like, don't sit down and go, well, I know you're a pagan, so what false god did you sacrifice this meat to, right? He's like, don't start a fight. He's like, don't, don't go in and assume that they're looking to offend you, right? He's like, if they lay something before you, eat it. Now, he gives, he gives a caveat here. He says, look, if someone there says, oh, by the way, this was sacrificed to whatever god, goddess, idol, he's like, at that point, you need to refrain He said, because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to say, like, this is a significant issue. And they may ask as to why you won't, and you'll be able to give an account as to who you worship and why you're not going to eat this food. But he said, but don't go in there and, and ask questions going, hey, can I or can I not eat this? He said, just eat it. Why? Why is he able to say this? Because... He understands that all things belong to God, that he agrees with them that food is just really for for nutritional benefit. And so the issue in, in all of this isn't food. The issue is idol worship. And so he says, if it's being presented in the market just as food, if it's being presented to you at the dinner table as just food, eat it. He said the issue isn't food. The issue is worship. And whether or not we are saying that we are worshiping the one true God or we're worshiping some false idol, some false God. He wants them to know that the food is not permanently tainted if it's been sacrificed. He's like, don't worry that someone's going to trick you and damn you, right? That they're going to like lay some food out and go, oh, you took a bite, sacrificed that this morning, you're in trouble with God now. He's like, look, the food is not permanently tainted by idol worship or sacrifice, And so what he does is he quotes from Psalm 24, recognizing the authority that everything belongs to God. Everything, right? And so he says in verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. He's like, it all belongs to God. And so you give thanks for the meal that's been put before you, the meat that's been put before you. You recognize the authority of God and you enjoy. He's like, but if they bring it up, that this has been sacrificed, so that you're not called a hypocrite, so that you're not um, maligned as being inconsistent, then you would re- refrain from that. You would, you would restrain yourself from eating. That he wants them to see the issue isn't food. 
but it's the association with the approval of idols. So don't investigate it. Just, just enjoy. So what this does is it allows them to be in relationship with people who aren't believers. Right? This would have been a, a strong thing for some, for some of the Jewish audience with Jewish backgrounds. He's allowing them. He's like, you don't have to go into hiding. You can go into people's homes. You can enjoy meals. You can do these things, and you don't have to give them, like, a spiritual checklist of, like, what they're serving for dinner. It's like, you can just go and be a normal person. If you remember in, in chapter 9, in verse 23, he, he talks about picking up and laying down freedoms for the sake of the gospel. He's like, I do this so that people will know Jesus. And then we see here in verse 31 of chapter 10, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Then he says, I want you to do whatever you do for the glory of God, for worship, so that some might believe. And so the question then is this, how do we eat and drink for the glory of God? Right? Like that's because he knows he's writing to the Corinthian church who's living in a pagan culture, and he's saying, I want you to reflect the image and the character of God because we're not building a temple. You are to be the temple of God in this city. And so whatever you do, I want you to do it for his name and his fame and his renown, right? So that those who are watching might believe. And so the question for them and the question for us then is how do we eat and drink for the glory of God? I think this is probably a common issue, but whether it was in the moment kind of of your salvation or whether it was some point after the fact when all of a sudden it seemed like the things of God like just became super clear, like that you were passionate about Him and, and it felt like everything, all of a sudden there was just this heaviness and this weight and this, this glory of God, that a common thing that you'll see happen is that people like, they don't know what to do with it and so they just try to put Jesus on, Right? And so I found myself in high school when, when I felt like kind of, I saw him clearly and saw the significance of what it meant for my life, that I'm like, how do I make Jesus everything? And so I'm like, I better put on a Jesus t-shirt, right? Because that was in the heyday of all the like, it kind of looks like an ad, but it's actually for Jesus, right? Like, you know, they were really bad. <laughs> but there was about a billion of them, right? And so I'd, I'd throw one of those on, and you, you know, you had your WWJD bracelet, and you had to make sure your radio station and your car was turned to a Christian station. And I couldn't take off my Yankees hat, but I looked at, you know, Jesus hats. And, right, like that you're looking at all of these, like, Jesus things. Because you're going, I want my life to be for him and about him. And so how do I do that? I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to go to things on Wednesday night. And then, but what about all these other days? And you're, like, trying to figure out how to, like, put Jesus on you. And to make sure all your conversations are about Jesus and you're carrying all your Jesus books and, and it, something feels off, and it feels like you can't do enough and that you're missing something because you know what? Life keeps going. And you still have these expectations of work and relationships of school. There's still mundane things that have to happen like mowing your yard, right? And you're like, well, how do I focus on these less spiritual things because Jesus is everything, right? And there's this, this, this like internal struggle. And I could remember that so much in high school of not knowing what to do with it. And yet Paul says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so what this verse is telling us is, is that in all of life, there's no gray. That in every moment, in every situation, in every conversation, in everything that you're doing, you're either honoring God and thus you are worshiping Him, or you're not, and you're displeasing Him. 
But there's no like gray area where like, hey, it's not Sunday, so today is not a religious day. And so I can just kind of do my thing, and as long as I don't sin big, we're good, because it's just kind of neutral. Paul says, no, in everything we do, we're either honoring God or we're not. There is no in-between. Let me tell you where it began to click for me. Um, some of you know Carmen and I went overseas for a couple years um, as real-life missionaries. That's not our term. That was what people would say, like, oh, y'all are real-life missionaries. Yeah, I'm so like, we're not real dead, but, right? Like, and so one of the expectations upon those who are on the mission field is that you send back reports, right? That you're sending emails or letters or somehow you're showing, like, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, typically if you read those, they're pretty spiritual, right? About salvations and preaching and conversions and all these things that are going on. And Carmen and I, Carmen was the one that would write the emails. And so we'd, we'd sit down and talk about, okay, a week's gone by or two weeks have gone by. We need to send something out. And there would be weeks where, like, here's what we did. We survived, right? And that meant, like, we went to the grocery store, right, and tried to figure out in Arabic how to buy something to eat. And we didn't have a car, so it meant we walked both ways, right? And then we had four hours of language school where I felt, was made to feel like a moron on a daily basis of, because of how bad of a student I was, right? And then the power would go off, and so you had no, you know, in the whole city, right, for just hours at a time, and so you just tried not to die because it was so hot, right? And then you had this one great conversation that lasted for all of 13 minutes because that's all the language you knew, right? And so you talked about, like, mango milkshakes for a little bit because you're drinking one and you don't have any other words to say. And now here's the thing. Now we're real-life missionaries, and we're supposed to write back as to the glory of what the Lord is doing. And I'm like, you know what? We survived. And I learned another word in Arabic, right? And I nearly got ran over by a motorcycle, right? And I'm like, and and I'm thinking, man, people are going to think we're frauds, like that we're not doing what the Lord has called us to because we're not having these like great and grand and glorious things occur. And I'm like, but we're here. And man, I love people, and I'm praying for people, and we're trying to learn the language, and we're trying to do things to develop relationships, and we're asking the Lord to work. But that's not really exciting. And then passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31 begin to come to mind, and I begin to realize if all of life is worship, then me getting my rear end handed to me in four hours of language school can be worship if I'm pursuing it. If I'm doing it because I want desperately to tell my neighbor about Jesus, and the best way to do that is to do it in his heart language of Arabic, right? That, that, that being here, those type of things begin to matter, and they're not exciting, and they're not sexy, and they're not stuff that people are going to write books about, but it's just the faithfulness that Scripture calls us to. And so what Paul is doing here is he's like, look, we are going to be the temple of God in Corinth. Church, we are the temple of God in Pampa and in the surrounding towns of West Texas. That's our calling. It's our job. We're not going to build a shrine that people come to and then go, oh, that's what he's like. We are to reflect that. And so Paul is saying, if we're to reflect that, then it means that in everything that we do in all of life, that we do it for the glory of God because we're constantly on display revealing his character to people around us. And so the call is to be faithful 
And the call is to treasure Him, not to on Sunday mornings put on a good show and then a, a, an 80% show on Wednesday nights and make sure we have a Jesus t-shirt on at least four days a week, right? Like that's not what we're called to do. We're called to know Him, to worship Him. So it says that we're to do it for the glory of God. So what's the glory of God? The glory of God is His fame and His name and His reputation and His character desiring to fill the earth. To be seen for the good, holy, right, faithful, merciful, gracious King that He is. Of all of His attributes that know no ends. That we will spend eternity mining the depths of who He is. Is trying to just fill the earth. And His holiness, though, is going up sinners, right, and wanting to separate. And so we live in those, the tension of those things. And so the glory of the earth, the wor- sorry, the glory of the Lord is filling the earth. And so what we want to, as we want to do things in His glory, is that we're say, for His glory, is we're saying we want people to know Him because He is worthy of worship. And so we want people to see Him clearly so that they can know Him and give Him the credit that He is due that we are trying to give Him in our lives. And more and more need to know that because He is worthy of it because we can't begin to give Him enough. And so as it's looking to fill the earth, so how do we do this? In Isaiah 43... Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, so this is those who know him, who love him, who treasure him, whom I created for my glory. So Isaiah 43 says we were created for his glory. So it means our very lives bring him honor and praise and glory if we are trusting him, depending upon him, following him, obeying him. And so how do we do things for his glory? It's by feeling, thinking, acting in ways that reflect his greatness and give evidence of his character, right? It's that we live a life that is in in every moment, not just on Sunday mornings, but in every moment it's saying, I trust him. I treasure him. I'm responding in this moment because of who he is and what he's done in my life, and I will desire for you to know him. Sometimes we think that Christians are... The expectation is that they're like just not pleasant people, right? They're just kind of rule-following and dour, just kind of sour people. But instead, what it's, it's, it's a call of delight that we have found something wonderful. It has been revealed to us that God has shown himself to us. And because we now have it, we say, I want you to know it too. So it's no different than you finding a really good, um, I don't even, you used to say album, but like you downloaded a really good song, Right? Um, you found a really good book. Some of you, you found a really good dive restaurant, right? Hole in the wall that no one knows about. And all you want is for someone, you want to take someone there to eat the same meal that you had so that their eyes will get big like yours did and they will say, this is awesome. Like you want to share the glory of that experience, right? That you want to share the glory of this book that finally articulated something that you've wanted to say for years and have been unable to say, and this author's been able to say it. So you're like, read this book. Listen to this song. This guy sings. This, this woman puts out music that just touches my soul. Right? That is extolling the glory of something because it's done out of delight. Now, here's the thing. We could spend days now talking about how we practically do this. And so we are going to barely touch the surface of this. 
But one of the ways that we can show the glory of God, that we can live out what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10, is through our work situations, right? The job that you have, you don't have to be a real-life missionary or a pastor to have a job that gives glory to God, right? There's like a false idea that the church has sometimes taught is that unless you're doing what I'm doing or you're on the mission field or you're somehow getting paid by some religious organization, then your job is somehow less than. The fact is, is that God calls us and equips us and places us in circles to live for His name and for His glory so that people would come to know Him. And so you do that through being a person of your word at work, of being a person of integrity, right? Of being someone who is known for going, hey, when they say something's going to get done, it gets done, right? For understanding that even when you have a bad boss that makes you suffer, do you understand I'm not working just for them, I'm working for the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians. That it, that it means that you're a person that they don't worry about with money, right? Because you're, you're not going to steal. You're not going to steal time. You're not going to steal things. That you're, that you're a person who is not looking to really promote themselves. That even if your job is less than ideal, if it's really not what you want to be doing, that because of your consistent character and your faithfulness and your honesty and your integrity, that you just do the job and you do it right and you do it well because you know that I am working for the Lord. And so you begin to go, man, this is not even that good of a job. Why do you work like this? Because I'm trying to worship, right? I'm trying to honor my king. Right? It gives you motivation beyond your paycheck. It gives you motivation beyond the fame or the glamour or the lack thereof in your job. That you're able to do it for others. And then we, another way we, we, we work for the glory of God in our job is we trust Him for provision. Right? That we show dependence upon Him. Right? And so we begin to, to, to do this even in our nine to five. Um, we can do this in relationships. So as kids... This looks like obedience to mom and dad, right? That we teach our kids, look, you're going to have authority over you always, forever. In the moment, it's me. And so I want you to obey me, not because I'm on a power trip, because someday I want you to be able to obey God. I want you to be able to trust his authority. And so for kids, kids can actually worship Jesus by being, right, obedient and faithful to their parents, that we serve one another in relationships, that we're humble in our relationships, that we're loving in our relationships, that we even consider others as better than ourselves in our relationships, because Jesus has already modeled this for us, that He has left the, the comfort of heaven and laid down these things to come in humility to love us, to serve us, to give us an example to follow. We can do this in our hobbies right? That we can begin to see them in their proper place. And so, for a lot of years, um, I would have told you Jesus was king, and yet what I worshiped was baseball. Like, because it's what I spent all my time doing. It's what I spent my time reading about. It's what I spent my time dreaming about. It's what I, if I was doing something of my own volition, my own choice, it would have had to do with baseball, right? Playing it, consuming it. And so, I would have said, Jesus is Lord, and my life would have said, baseball is, Right? Now, here's the thing. I, I would say now, Jesus is Lord, and, I, and I, I think that's where I'm at. But I still love baseball. But what has happened is they've fallen into their proper place. 
And, and one of the ways the Lord did this for me was He gave me an eternal perspective. That part of why I loved baseball and part of why I wanted to be great at anything I did was because I wanted to be remembered. I wanted to leave a legacy. I wanted to be known. And I thought, life is going to be short, and I, I felt like I had eternity. Kind of, I understood that at a young age. And so I'm like, I got to make this time count because life is going to come to an end, and that's it. And I got to make sure I'm remembered. So if I'm going to be a doctor, then I'm going to cure cancer. If I'm going to be a baseball player, I got to go to the Hall of Fame. Like, I've got to be great at whatever I do so that I will be remembered. And what the Lord did was He reminded me of Ecclesiastes 3.11, right? He has put eternity into our hearts, right? He's done that. And so I knew that that was a big deal. But what happens is we have an enemy that wants to satisfy you, and the temptation even this week for you will be to satisfy you with temporary glories and smaller things that will, will give you a fleeting pleasure and a fleeting satisfaction rather than really taking hold of Jesus who will satisfy every desire of your heart for eternity. And so he gives us these smaller things. And so baseball went from being king to it had to, it had to die so that Jesus could be king. And then it wasn't that I laid baseball down forever. I still enjoy it. I'm still a fan of it. I still want to play. I hope my kids will enjoy it. But it's not everything, Right? I can, I can go without it as well. And so it begins to give our, our hobbies a proper place. And so we can just look at them and say, God gives us good gifts. He's a good dad. And we can enjoy them, but we don't enjoy them more than him. And no father gives their kid a gift and says, I hope you like this more than me. But they give it to him to enjoy. They give it to because they want them to have it and to love it. But they wanted to see that I was the, I was the one who gave it to you because I'm good and I love you and I'm generous. And so God gives us good things to enjoy, families and relationships and jobs and children and hobbies and nature and traveling and all of these good and right and glorious things that we will have for eternity to be understood that they were given by a good father who is better than all of them. And so then they can be enjoyed properly. But as soon as we say, this is everything, this is life, it will crumble and it will not satisfy us. It will fail us. That we don't want to build our lives around things that will fade away. That's why Scripture would often talk about those in, in, in the parables. It's like you're a fool if you build your life on things and on money. Because there will be a day where your life will be demanded of you and you will take none of it with you. It will be given to someone else. So we build it on things that last. And what's going to last are relationships and it's, it's eternity with Jesus. So we, 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 we want to become rich in those things. And look, again, we could talk about the practicality of how we live for the glory of God in every aspect of life, and I hope we will do that in gospel community this week. We could do that all day. But I just want to look at one more. Because he, because he mentions these words. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So how do you drink for the glory of God? Right? Just simple, right? John Piper says it like, you know, how do you drink orange juice for the glory of God? Right? Here's the idea here. Is that in consuming your sweet tea at lunch today, you're reminded of who your provider is. Right? Psalm 24. 
Who, who owns it all? As you are hospitable around meals, right? As you have people over to enjoy your beverages, or as you're in their home enjoying their beverages, do you understand that we have a God who is hospitable, who pursued us and invited us to a far better meal than we deserve? And so we can sit around a, t- a table with sweet tea and ribs, right, and simply enjoy it because God is the provider of it and because we are reminded that his character is one who's invited us into fellowship, that we're not just invited in, we're invited to the table, that he pursued us. So it's why Paul would tell them, go eat at the unbeliever's home. It's okay. And don't ask about where the meat came from, right, because it's not about the food. It's about what we worship, Another way is that we can be generous as we eat and as we drink, that we want, to, we want to be generous because God is generous and He has given us everything in Christ. What, what would He withhold from us? And so, I want to be generous for you to enjoy what I have. It allows me to take a smaller portion if necessary because I'm not worried about my rights, right? I can do this because Jesus left everything to give us everything. you remember Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians 2 says this, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Church, that's what we're invited into. There is nothing better than what God has prepared for us. And we get taste of it and glimpses of it in this life, but we are headed to eternity with the giver of all wonderful things who is far better than you think he is this morning, who is far better than you can imagine. And he's inviting you to a banquet table to eat for all of eternity with him. So Paul is saying, so live your life in, that's the finish line, that's where we're headed. And so we live now in light of that. And so we do all things for the glory of God because we remember who he is and what he's done. And so church, as you love him, as you trust him, as you obey Him, as you show gratitude, as you reflect upon His goodness, as you enjoy Him, as you treasure Him out of delight and not out of, out of any sort of obligation, then you are living for the glory of God in every situation. So I want to read one final verse. This is Psalm 115.1. This would be the cry of our hearts. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, But to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Right? That in all that we do, that it would not be for the glory of Redeemer. That in all that we do, it would not be for the glory of Jeremy or your family. For the glory of God who has taken those of us who warred against him, were rebels. He has loved us and pursued us and brought us into his family and made us sons and daughters. And so now we want to live for our good Father, reflecting His image and delighting in Him and telling people of Him and obeying Him and knowing that all of life now is worship, not just Sunday morning at 11, not just Wednesday night at 6, not just when I have my Jesus shirt on, but the way that I live and interact with people, respond, trust, obey, depend, is worship and honoring to the King. That's our heart's desire. So Paul does this, right? He leads us right up to here. And now in chapter 11 and then the subsequent chapters, we're going to move into worship and what it looks like for the church in Corinth to worship, knowing that that is 
partly what happens here, but it's also what goes on outside of here. So that's where we're headed to now. Next. Let's pray.